This is Donna Otto, and we are modern homemakers, and you'll have to have this giggle with me, but I try very hard to be upbeat when we start our time together, because I'm awfully glad to be here, and I'm awfully glad to um, have a privilege to introduce you things, especially during these last days as we have been walking through Lent and preparation for Easter, and now these last seven statements spoken from the cross by Christ. But there's that cheery welcome, just as I'm about to talk to you about the fourth statement that Jesus spoke, which was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not quite so cheery, is it? Not quite so cheery. (sighs) Have you ever been forsaken? I have. Uh, It is a definite um, sense of rejection and betrayal, a heartbreaking, heart-rendering, a sense of pausing long enough to wonder, did I do something to deserve that, or was that someone who just needed to vent, and I was the ventee. Is there a ventee? I'm not sure there is, but I think I felt like there has been, and I'm sure you have been a product of that as well. So today I want to read to you from the two places, the two Gospels that um, describe and quote this phrase from Christ on the cross. The first is in Mark chapter 15, verse 34, And it says, at three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. And what he cried out, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then in Matthew, where we've been situated looking at the Sermon on the Mount in and around these days of Lent, chapter Matthew chapter 27 we say at about three o'clock, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama shabakthian. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I know with fear and trembling, I bring this passage to you because there are some who believe that it is not possible for God to have forsaken his son. And um, I know God pretty well, and I, I have to stand to tell you that I believe that's not possible also. But I also believe that the sense of desolation, the sense of desolation that Christ was feeling in that moment, and we've been talking about this as we began this series, and we're on the fourth statement of seven statements, how absolutely devastating was the surroundings around Christ as he was going through this week of weeks, as I have called it. And thank you for those of you who paused long enough and said, hey, will you send me a copy of that very old 1977, uh, I guess I could call it a script, a screenplay maybe, no, a small little 
play that was offered for children's ministries, and we have used it in our own lives in a, on the patio and in the great room of our house through the years of celebrating celebrating Easter and the resurrection. That's one of the things I've been thinking about I wanted to say to you, and you're going to get this lesson just a few days before Palm Sunday. And I never thought of this, except that right now, I've just decided, because the Lord leads me to read things, and I have books and books of shelves in my home, even in the new house, my husband laughed the other day and said, honey, is is that an Amazon package that has books in it? And of course, I could not tell a lie, and I said, yes. He just said, oh. And then later at the dinner table, I said, why did you ask me that? He said, because I wonder how long it would take after we got rid of hundreds of books for you to start adding new books to the shelves. And I am. I do love books. If there was anything I'd be addicted to, it would be books. And I picked up a volume of the Chronicles of Narnia, which is pictorial, and one volume, and all the Chronicles. And I decided to read Prince Caspian, which I had not read in a very long time. And as I was reading it, I was thinking of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. And I thought, that's a rather important ingredient to the story, to the account of Easter. And so I went on my television and bought the Disney version of the Chronicles of Narnia, and I wept. I just wept. So if your children have never seen that, it costs three ninety five. If your children have never seen, if they've not read or you have not been privileged to read aloud to them, watch it between now and Good Friday. Aslan, the cracking of the stone, the resurrection. It's quite powerful. All around that marvelous writer, C.S. Lewis, who did an incredible thing, because what he wrote would definitely be considered children's material, except there's not a believing adult soul who's read it and said, I want to read it again. It's marvelously written. All of that as an aside, as I went to Psalm 22. So the decision of whether God has forsaken Jesus or not, I think is more in tune with what he wants us to sense because all of this has been for our well-being. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because that is what David says in Psalm 22. He opens it with those exact words. He is in a place of dire suffering, and he is asking God for deliverance. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, I find no rest. Now, I don't know if you've ever been that forsaken. I have been. But I hear is Christ on the cross, and whether God has left him or not left him, and there are a lot of scholars scholars who theologically uh, put an emphasis on the fact, of course, he had to have left him because he had to have gone through the process of death, and yet God cannot possibly leave you. He goes on in Psalm 22 by playing out these words in Golgotha by saying, but I'm a worm and no man scorned by men and despised by people all. He mocks me. They make their mouths. They wag their heads. 
he committed his cause to the Lord and left him there. They left it for God to rescue him. David's agony, his pain, his need for deliverance, his pathetic position. How I love the Psalms. How I love the Psalms. For when I am pathetic, I join with some other pathetic psalm writer in the many laments. We might ask, were all the Father love for me? Am I his beloved? Was Jesus his beloved son? Did he say, in whom I am well pleased? And does he know where I am? And does he know every hair on my head? Yes, yes, yes to all of those. It certainly looks like God is painting this look of uncaringness, but it is not an uncaringness. It's certainly not an uncaringness for his son. It's a caring for us. Why have you abandoned me? This has never happened in Jesus' life as a man on the earth. The disciples, we are told, have all by now fled. There are only those four left at the cross, John the Beloved and the three Marys, including his mother. And Jesus does not call him Father here, but rather his formal name, God. Why have you forsaken me? A name from the Trinity. A name from the Trinity. And back to Psalm 22, looking at the psalm and looking at verse 24 of this psalm, he says, For he did not despise or abhor the affliction of the afflicted. He did not hide his face from me, but heard when I cried to him. I'm going to do a little series next month, soon, on listening. I know we've talked about that before, haven't we? And if you haven't read the Sacred Listening, which is on our website, a lot of free resources on our website, a lot of some you can purchase, but the Sacred Listening 10 Postures is found there as a free resource. And I'm hoping that soon, if not already, you can archive that lesson. But I'm going to be talking about much more than I did in that one or two shows. God is doing something. He has done something. And posterity will, sh- will serve him well. Men shall tell of the Lord in the coming generations of what he has done and what he has proclaimed. And that is part of the reason why during this pandemic time, when we have been at home um, watching from our technological tools, computers and FaceTimes and laptops and pads and television services, how wonderful it is that we've been able to do this. Someone asked me what I thought about that, and you know what I said? I think that all churches should uh, acknowledge that um, they don't want to be a church that does not have a presence in each life and have community. And somewhere soon, when this band is really lifted, totally lifted in freedom, they should say, oh, I'm really sorry. Only the shut-ins, and those are the ones we know and we're going to send it to them directly, are going to have access to services online. I have to tell you, if I was a young mom with three small children and I could cozy up on the sofa while my kids are in the other room or get one on my lap and one on my husband's lap and be in my jammies and watch church, I think I might like it. But I also know that I'm not a woman that age and I am certain to tell you that you miss uh, one of God's key gifts to us and that is community and family and relationships. The cry is repeated in Mark and in Matthew and the Greek words suggest that the loud voice was more like a scream, not just a loud voice. 
So why would they have this? The pain must have gotten beyond our understanding. It must have gotten beyond a human's ability to acknowledge what Jesus is really going through. The four Gospels and the interpretation should be considered here. Luke cried out with a loud voice that appears to be the same cry that says, Into your hands I place my spirit just as Jesus dies. Mark's the cry of dereliction is followed immediately by the affirmation from the centurion who says, truly, this must be the son of God. And then comes the earthquake and the darkness from noon to three. In this cry, some might find despair, but I think God finds hope. God is not a dead philosopher, as people have tried to tell us. John's gospel tells us that I am never alone because the Father is with me. In the world I will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. Have you ever had someone say that to you? Be of good cheer when you are in tribulation. Why will we be of good cheer? Because we know, even if we can't feel it, we know that he has overcome the world. Now, soon and very soon, I also hope to do a session with you about this understanding of our own feelings and where do feelings fit in? Did God God give us feelings? Did he give us feelings to perseverate on them? Did he give us feelings to acknowledge them? Are feelings good? Are feelings bad? Do they have or are they just real? And are they just a part of how we are created? And I'll give you a little of my own history. Some of it's not very pretty. Jesus is not a victim. Just keep remembering that all of this process, is nobody victimized Jesus. No one made him do this. He could have called the 10,000 angels. He is firmly in charge of this process. He comes from Bethany over the hill into Jerusalem. Even his disciples say, let's not go there. It's not a good spirit in Jerusalem right now. But Jesus, and I love this phrase, I don't know where I read it or heard it, but Jesus is relentlessly obedient. Jesus is relentlessly obedient. That, that should be the subset of this lesson. Jesus is relentlessly obedient. He's been obedient every step of the way, step by step by step, from emerging through the dark birth canal to entering to the darkness of death. Anything that is not instant obedience is disobedience, says my dear friend Elizabeth. I remember the first time she said that, and I thought, oh, because I wasn't very good at instant anything, much less instant obedience. I... I had some friends who fought back on that, and there were very few things that I fought back that Elizabeth taught me and shared with me, but I never fought back on that one. I thought that's exactly exactly the difference in my attitude. When I'm asked to do something of God, if I ponder it and push it around and consider it and try to come to reasons why, why not to, I find myself being willfully disobedient, delaying in it because I don't really want to do it. The big idea there is that there's failure, failure. Dereliction, the, the definition of dereliction is the state of having been abandoned and become dilapidated. Every year, valuable gardens start the slow slide to dereliction, dereliction. 
That's what he says, that he, how he repeats it. John's account, almost as we know John, more meditative and tranquil, like going to sleep after accomplishing the great work he was sent to do. Jesus says, it is finished. Another frame of this picture, not the pain, not the sorrow, not the suffering, but the victory and the glory that is to come. John has a vision and he talks as if he's seen the past and the moment of the future, and we are that future. We are that future. We are the recipients, the byproduct of that scene at Golgotha. We are privileged because of that scene. Scholars think this might be simply a language issue. Was it Greek, Aramaic, or Hebrew? That they all tend to describe that it is abandonment, a forsakenness, a left alone to die alone. One of the writers I read about this passage said, abandon, throw it aside like roadkill. <laughs> roadkill has quite a different use, isn't it? Joseph, Joseph Conrad, who wrote The Heart of Darkness, he speaks. The Heart of Darkness, the character of Kurtz, who is a slaver and has spent his days in trafficking and human misery, cries out, the horror, the horror. We too have looked into the heart of darkness and seen the horror. To be sure, at the heart of darkness, there is also hope because the word's word is not the last word. I think it's very important to see the cross, to feel the cross, to understand so much of the cross, but that it, it, it's always going to still be a mystery to us. If there's one word that would encapsulate what God's word is to us, is mystery. It's always a mystery. If I understood it, I would be God. I, I don't. I don't. There are many things that I don't understand, many things that I keep looking at and rolling over. And sometimes I feel like I'm polishing. Uh, I have a lot of silver pieces, or I used to have. I don't have as many right now, but I would polish them. And some of them are old and have a lot of engraving and ornate stuff, a big tray, which I recently gave away. And, you know, getting in the crevices to clean it out, there, there, there was a lot of work to it. But every time I would clean it, some, something more beautiful would come. And I feel like that's how this mystery is to me. I keep reading it and rereading it. And every day and every time, I feel a sense of clarity and beauty coming through it. My own fear of abandonment, the reliving of all the serious relationships that have left me for a season or forever by their will, their stubbornness, their disobedience, their own personal pain, they still just left. This is a complicated statement, I think. Uh, when my father left, he left for a different reason than when my mother left. My mother left when she left, decided that she couldn't take care of a child, but she wanted to keep the child. And those first three years of my life, I was taken care of by two elderly spinster women who I've never met. I do have a picture of one of them, which I got about 10 years ago. <clears throat> I was left. And then my father married my mother, and then they lived together very unhappily for 10 years. And then my father left, and he left for another woman. This leaving, this abandonment, this being left alone, um, is very, very hard to receive. I have heard that the word passion is defined as overcome by something. Passion. Overcome by something. 
What do you have a passion for? What are you overcome by? I was overcome by David Otto. When I first met him, I was overcome by him. He was so exciting and so romantic. And I'm glad to tell you that he is still very exciting and very romantic. We are much older. But I was overcome by who he was and then what God allowed him to become in my life. When I think of that as a tangible picture, say it to you, men and women around the world, wherever you are listening from, I want you to think about some place in your life that you were overcome by beauty, overcome by pain, overcome by laughter or merriment, looking up at a mountain or a painting. I can still remember looking at a Van Gogh painting in a in Paris, literally in Paris, in the museum, and I tears just rolled down my face. I was overcome by its beauty. I pray that this end of season, as we get ready to celebrate the week of weeks and the resurrection and crucifixion, that we be overcome by his love and his mercy, his grace and his generosity. We know why he did this, that we might have the privilege of relationship with him. Jesus goes to the abyss. He goes to the abyss. We can refuse him. And when we do, we betray him, or we can open our hearts to his love and healing. And it's my prayer that as we close in on these days of preparation for the crucifixion and the resurrection, that you will be overcome by his beauty and bend your way in a new way, in a new way, an ongoing way of receiving his great love, of being restored from the places you have been abandoned or wounded or have been caused great suffering. I'm Donna Otto, and this is Modern Homemakers, and we always want you to remember that the common begin and the uncommon finish. Go out and make it a very uncommon day of being overcome by the love of God.